Amen. As always, so beautiful, Pastor David. Miss Pat, thank you so much for that. Let's open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Uh, today we will continue our study on the Sermon on the Mount. And we're going to continue again today by looking on the Sermon on the Mount uh, regarding this uh, idea of adultery. So I'm going to read Matthew chapter 5. Uh, this is part 2. And I'm going to read uh, Matthew 5. Uh, excuse me, verses 26 and 27. It says, Truly I say to you, you will not... Uh, excuse me, verse 27 and 28. You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray, Lord, as now we look at your very words of life, Lord, that you would be with us during these next few moments. Father, that I would speak those words that you have spoken, Father. Pray that your word would do its work today and that Christ would be exalted. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Well, this past week, I sent out a sermon uh, to our congregation on our text service called Child Discipline, and I was reading that, I actually, or listening to it, I listened to it, um, I don't know, about eight years ago, and I was, I, as I was re- reviewing my sermon notes for today, the way that this pastor introduces the topic and, and the very vital uh, um, duty that we have to tra- uh, tra- train our children, he starts the passage out, or he starts the sermon out by literally telling his congregation that he literally is hoping to terrify them uh, today when it comes to the importance of training our children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. He said, I wish to terrify you. And so as I was reviewing my sermon notes in this passage, I I thought the same thing for today. So I want to start by saying, with the passage today, I truly wish to terrify you. I truly wish to instill an amount of fear into you when it comes to this text of committing uh, adultery, sexual immorality, the text uh, that we're going to dive in today about lust and all of the like. So I really hope that uh, I instill some terror in you because that's how important it is to God when it comes to committing adultery and sexual immorality. Paul in 1 Corinthians 6.18, he says to flee from sexual immorality Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but sexual immoral person sins against his own body. He says to flee, which means to run away, to escape, he says. The word has the connotation that there's some sort of impending danger. To escape, don't stop, don't look back, just run. And that's the word that he gives when he tells the church of Corinth to flee sexual immorality. Don't wait. Flee from it. So yes, it's my desire today to terrify you to the point that you flee from the desires of the flesh, from the temptation towards sexual immorality, which Jesus says starts in the heart and in the mind. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, starting at verse 3, Paul says this, For this is the will of God. So many people ask, I don't know what God's will is for my life. Just look at here. (laughs) He tells you, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. And he 
more specifically says, that is that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God, and that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter. In what matter? In sexual immorality. It doesn't just hurt yourself, it hurts others. Because the Lord, it says, is the avenger of all these things. Just as we told you before and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. And Paul says in verse 8, So he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. The very words that I'm going to bring to you today that Jesus brought the crowds and his disciples are the very words of God regarding sexual immorality, regarding uh, lust, regarding uh, uh, thoughts of lustful passion. And he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but rejecting the very God who gives the Holy Spirit. Uh, This is a very serious matter I want to bring your attention to, church. Uh, And I want to give you some statistics uh, about sexual immorality, specifically about sexual immorality without another person. Uh, According to research by Covenant Eyes, we're talking about looking at things you ought not to be looking at and having um, pornographic sex is what I'm going to call this. One in five youth pastors and one in seven lead pastors use porn on a regular basis and are currently struggling in the matter. It's more than 50,000 church leaders. Now, we don't have any youth pastors here, but one in seven lead pastors are actively looking at things they ought not to be looking at. 43% of lead pastors and youth pastors say they've struggled with pornography in the past. 64% of Christian men and 15% of Christian women say they watch porn at least once a month. 64% of Christian men. Now, the way they define Christian men, I think, is pretty good. Uh, I would hope and I would like to think that in our church that takes the Word of God seriously, takes sanctification seriously and holiness seriously, that it would not be 64%. But let's say it's half of that, half of the national average. And we're talking about one out of three men here who are actively, possibly, actively watching pornography at least once a month, looking at things you ought not to be looking at. Another statistic I found startling was that 56% of divorces, it's a little over half of the divorces, involved one party having, quote, an obsession, uh, excuse me, an obsessive interest in pornographic websites. An obsessive interest in pornographic websites. Half of divorces have one party that has that obsession. And of the spouse on the other end of that, uh, this research shows that they actually have PTSD type of symptoms after having a spouse that has this obsession with pornographic websites. And this is what we call pornographic sex. This is what it is, and it's immoral, and it is an affront to God's holiness, the nature of marriage, the nature of uh, sanctification, 
And God is not pleased with the state of the church when it comes to this. And the problem is that the culture has accepted this as normal. You know, some years ago, this was like uh, frowned upon. Uh, Now, people could care less. It's just a thing. There's no big deal. And Covenant Eyes, they did some research on this. And 90% of teenagers and young adults, okay, we're talking like 25 and under, uh, either when they're talking about porn with amongst friends or colleagues, 90% of teens, 96% of young adults are either encouraging, accepting, or neutral when they're talking about pornography. So it, it is not a big deal to the younger generation. And only 55% of adults, 25 and older, believe that pornography is wrong. Only 55% that believe that pornography is wrong. And listen to this, last statistic here. The majority of teens and young adults ages 13 to 24 believe that if you don't recycle, that's worse than watching pornography. Now, if you want more, there's some other research here that's very frightening about the nature of pornography, the negative effects down the line of pornography just from a physical, emotional, uh, marital type of thing. So feel free to go look that up on Covenant Eyes. But the sin of pornographic sex is an issue running rampant in America. Nobody's talking about it. It's running rampant in the churches. It destroys marriages. It destroys present and future marriages. When you have single people that are steeped in pornographic sex, it ruins the marriage that they're going to have. Pornography destroys churches, and it weakens our gospel witness. It's an affront to the holiness of God. It's an affront to his providence and his sovereign rule over our lives. And pornographic sex or pornography, it leads, most cases, many cases at least, it leads to uh, adultery with another person. But I would say that pornographic Uh, activity is just as bad as just as bad as adultery with another person it's just as bad as according to our lord and savior here as he says in our text furthermore we're going to learn today that this sin starts even earlier than the act of pornographic sexual activity and even earlier than having sexual lust in the heart Now, last week, I took a step back from our text as we're going through the Sermon of the Mount, verse by verse. I took a step back to walk you through the biblical ethic of marriage. I want to encourage you, if you haven't listened to that, please listen to that. Because we wanted to understand the importance that God places upon marriage. And and we wanted to raise our view of marriage. We wanted to have a right perspective of marriage so that we can go into this text with that framework. When we have the right foundation of marriage and how God abhors anything that perverts it, we can rightly understand the weight of this text here in Matthew chapter 5. So very briefly, to remind you of the context of this passage, we're still in this section starting at verse 21 through the end of the chapter where Jesus gives a, a picture of the relationship of a true believer and the law of God. 
Now, the Beatitudes at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, it describes the nature of a true Christian. And in this section, it describes that relationship a true Christian has with the law of God. And he does this by bringing out the original meaning of the law. So at verses 17 through 19, Jesus establishes the validity and the perpetuity of the law. And then the rest of the chapter, he gives these six illustrations to correct the oral traditions and the rabbinic teaching that they perverted the very law of God. So I want to remind you of these four principles, kind of a broad uh, stroke, these four principles of these six illustrations that Jesus gives, with the first one being uh, murder, the second one being adultery that we're on today. Now the first principle uh, with we see here in these texts is that by Correcting the pharisaical abuses of the law, Jesus is presupposing the validity of the law. As he said, I did not come to destroy the law, he says in verses 17 and 18. And in these six examples, two of them come from the Ten Commandments. The other four come from other parts of the Old Testament. And a couple of these aren't even in the Old Testament law, which shows us that he was rebuking the oral traditions of the law. Like for the first one in verse 21, he says, you shall not commit a murder. He says, you've heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder. And whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. That second part was not in the Old Testament law. And then if you look at the last example, uh, let's see, the last example, uh, verse 43, he says, you've heard that it was said You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Well, the hating of your enemy wasn't in the Old Testament, uh, in Old Testament law. So Jesus is rebuking the Pharisees' uh, oral tradition that had been passed on through the ages. Uh, Number two, what we see is that the law of God is not concerned with the negative, but also with the positive. So for every negative uh, prohibition that God gives, there's also a positive command on the other side uh, of that. Uh, For example, the sixth commandment, right? The negative is not taking another person's life. But the positive aspect is the sanctity and preserving life, being active to seek the good of those around you. The third principle in these six illustrations is that God is more concerned with your internal desires, motives, and thoughts than your external actions. These six illustrations show us that God is more concerned with your inner purity than your outer performance. See, friends, you can have the external performance of the law down pat and yet still be walking in sin. And this is not a New Testament thing, but it's saturated in the Old Testament. Jesus is addressing the issues of the heart, the issues of the heart. And we see all throughout the Old Testament that God is concerned with the motives of man. God is concerned with the heart. Proverbs 16, verse 2 says, All the ways of a man are clean in his own sight, but the Lord weighs the motives. And there are many other texts that point to God searching the heart of man and, and wanting the heart to be right. Um, and then the fourth illustration is that our, or our, fourth, our fourth principle for these six illustrations is that our ultimate goal is not simply to avoid sin. Our ultimate goal is to become more and more like your heavenly Father. And if you look at the end of the chapter in verse 48, he says, Therefore, okay, because of all these things, 
You are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, that's a standard that he sets so that the law of God can convict hearts and bring sinners to repentance, but it's also an exhortation for those who love Christ to be perfect, okay, to to strive with all you can to be holy, as God says, for I am holy. Realizing that we truly can never be perfect, but it doesn't mean we we lower our standard and say, well, I'm not perfect, so I'm going to just do this because I can't help it. Friends, there's no room for that in the Christian walk. We are to strive to be holy because God says, be holy, for I am holy. So that brings us to today's text, Matthew 5, verse 27 and 28. I'll read it again. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So during this time, I'm going to kind of zoom in and zoom out. Okay, there's a narrow scope to this text when it comes to adultery, but there's also an overarching principle. Okay, so I'm going to be kind of zooming in and zooming out from the narrow scope of adultery, sexual lust, sexual immorality, to sort of the broad principle of this idea that God weighs the motives and God weighs the heart and the issues in the matter of the, the heart. So here in the text, Jesus addresses our natural inclination to measure our spirituality to the external demands of the law. Let me say that again. Jesus is addressing our natural inclination to measure our spirituality with the external demands of the law. In other words, friends, it doesn't take much effort to look at our external deeds, compare them to others, and say, hey, I'm doing pretty good. Or, hey, look, I haven't killed anybody. I haven't committed the, the overt act of adultery. I haven't slept with another person. Uh, and our natural inclination is to be that way. And Jesus addresses that here in the text. Rabbinic teaching held the sin of adultery only to committing the overt physical act itself. That's why Jesus uses this terminology. It's the same terminology that's used in all six illustrations where he says, you heard that it was said. Now, this phrase in the Greek is never used by Jesus when referring to the written scripture. He, when he's referring to the authority of the, uh, the written word, he says, it was written. You heard that it was written. But the fact that he uses the word ancients in the first in, in the first and another illustration, you've heard that the ancients were told. This shows us that the, he's, he's correcting the Pharisaical tradition uh, that they twisted the law to fit so that they can appease their conscience that they were righteous. But before you rebuke the Pharisees, the Pharisees are like us, aren't they? We like to check the boxes, Right? Yep, did that. I didn't kill anybody today. Pretty good. I didn't commit adultery today. Pretty good. I didn't steal anything today from anybody. Pretty good. Read my Bible. Check. You know, may have prayed. Checked. You know, that's how the Pharisees, they like to check the boxes with the physical aspect to to meet God's law. This is how the Pharisees viewed the law. The focus was on the letter of the law, not the spirit of the law. Jesus' pattern of rebuke was upon the Pharisees' outward performance of the law. 
Yet inwardly he called them whitewashed tombs. Matthew 23. He says, which on the outside appear beautiful. Why do they appear beautiful on the outside? Because they're meeting the external demands of the law. But inside were full of dead man's bones and all uncleanliness. He said, so you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Outwardly, they were beautiful. They appeared, Jesus said, you appear righteous to men. They appeared righteous to men because, oh, look, wow, they, they don't kill people. They don't, uh, they don't steal. They, they pray. They do all the, the spiritual things on the outside. They appeared righteous to men, but inside they were full of dead man's bones. This is speaking to their external legalistic keeping of the law. And Jesus' rebuke here in our text was because they had missed the whole intent of the law, the whole intent of it. They missed the true doctrine of sin, which is aimed at your heart. So this leads me to my first point of the text, and that's this. Sin is a matter of the heart. Sin is a matter of the heart. And this is not to negate the external sin. I mean, you, you commit adultery, that's an external act, that's a sin. But the root of it is the heart, and you can't have one without the other. You commit the sin overtly of adultery, you already committed it in your heart long before you committed it externally. The standard that Jesus gives here in our text is that adultery starts in the heart. It starts with sexual lust. And the sin of sexual lust is a very abominable thing. Jesus says here that you've already committed adultery when you've done that. However, I believe after studying this text is that Jesus is pointing to an even deeper sin issue of the heart. And that's your motives. Why you do what you do. God knows every intent of the heart, my friends. And he's addressing that here in our text. He knows not only what you do, but he knows why you do it. And you can see this in, in 1 Samuel 16, 7, where God says that man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And I read earlier of Proverbs 16, 22, that the Lord weighs the motives. Jeremiah 11.20 says, But, O Lord of hosts, who judges righteously, who tries the feelings and the heart. Jeremiah 17.10, I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind. God is more concerned with why you do something than what you did. You understand that, friends? Now, let's look at the text. I want to dissect this a little bit because I'm going to show you what I'm talking about. So Jesus here uh, in our text, he says, But I say unto you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her. Okay, that's in verse 28. Now, your version might say, uh, whoever looks upon a woman to lust after her. Another version says, who looks on a woman with lustful intentions. But here we have two verbs, and I want to break these down for you because it'll show you what I'm talking about here. 
The first verb is blepo. It means to look. It's physically with your eyes to look. So when Jesus says everyone who looks, that's the word blepo. It's to physically look. It's in the present active participle in the original language. Now, I know that may be a little bit foreign to you, but the participle is a very interesting uh, way to parse a verb because a, par- a participle verb acts as a verbal noun. So another way to say this is the looking ones, the ones that are looking upon women, okay? It's important. Then you have the preposition pros, which means to or towards, okay? So it says all the looking ones who look at a woman to lust for her, okay? This is where I think some of the other versions like the KJV and the NKJV actually translate this better. Whoever look upon a woman to lust after her. The looking ones on a woman, and the reason why they're going to look upon a woman is to lust for her. That preposition, pros. Okay, it's where we get the word like proselyte or proselytize. You're trying to bring somebody to the faith as opposed to apostate. Okay, it's someone going away from the, from the faith. Apa, that's the preposition in the Greek to go away from, but this is pros, to. So the idea Jesus is saying here is that whoever looks upon a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery in the heart. Lust, we're going to dive into that in here in a few minutes, but it means to desire, to covet, and the sin of lusting sexually is a sin, but is that what Jesus is saying here? Is Jesus saying whoever lusts after a woman in his heart commits adultery? No, he throws the looking in there. Okay, you get what I'm saying? Jesus um, didn't say whoever lusts for another woman, although that's a sin. No, he said whoever looks at a woman to lust for her. The sin is in the intention of your heart on why you're making that choice to look to her, to desire and to lust after her. So the sin that I see here is deeper than the sin of lust, brothers and sisters. This is how holy and righteous our God is. Okay? Committing adultery is a sin, wicked in the eyes of God. Lusting and, and, and desiring uh, someone who's not your spouse, uh, sexually desiring them in your heart is a sin. It's an abominable to God. But God's righteous standard is even holier than that. It's actually when you make the conscious choice to look upon that person because you want to lust for her. The motive there is the sin. Let me illustrate this for you. A man walks into a store, common everyday experience, right? And he's just minding his own business and he passes a very attractive woman. Whatever attraction means to that man, this woman is very attractive and he sees her. No harm there, right? But his interest is piqued. Okay? And he sees her again later in the store in an aisle. Now, instead of just a normal look by passing someone, instead of a normal look, he makes the intentional look for the sole purpose of lusting after her. And that is the sin. And friends, let me be clear. You can't have one without the other. The lust in the heart started with an intentional looking upon that person to have, to lust after her. So lust is the sin, yes, but the very motivation for, in this illustration was him 
but the very motivation for him looking, the motivation for him looking was sin as well. And that's how holy our God is. So when we make the conscious decision to look upon a woman or women, man, with too lust for her, God knows your motives and you've sinned with that motivation, looking upon that person to lust. To illustrate this further, turn to Job chapter 31, and we see Job making some startling statements very similar to what we're talking about here in Matthew chapter 5, Job chapter 31. Job in this chapter is making the case defending his integrity. And he starts out by saying in verse 1, I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? Here, Job understands the temptation of lusting after someone who's not his wife. So he makes a covenant with his eyes. And he says, how could I gaze at a virgin? He understands the temptation to look upon a woman to lust after. And he says, no, I can't do it. And in the verse, next eight verses, he goes on by uh, defending himself. Again, the integrity, defending the integrity of his heart. And now go to verse 10, excuse me, verse 9. Now he says, if my heart has been enticed by a woman or have lurked at the neighbor's doorway, may my wife grind for another and let others kneel down over her. In other words, let my wife have relations with someone else if my heart has been enticed by a woman or have lurked at my neighbor's doorway. Job looks beyond the overt sin of adultery. And he says, if my heart has even been enticed, drawn to another woman, or if I've lurked at my neighbor's doorway, there's the motivation, right? What he's saying is that if I've, if I've set myself up, if I've made up my mind to go commit adultery by putting myself in the situation outside uh, another's doorway, my neighbor's doorway, uh, to, to have adultery with her, just that very act, he says, then he says, if I've done that, I am guilty and let my wife be with another. So friends, we have to understand that the deeper issue is the sin of the heart. And Jesus says this, does he not, elsewhere? In Mark chapter 7, Mark chapter 7, he says, in verse 20, and he was saying that with that which proceeds out of the man, that is, which, that is what defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, and that word sensuality in the original language, it actually has a lewdness to it. It has a sexual immoral connotation to it. Envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. Jesus says all these things, all these evil things, proceed <clears throat> from within and defile a man. So Jesus is laying out the very truth that I'm speaking here, that sin is a matter of the heart. 
So in the illustration in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is saying that sin is not a matter of external behavior. That's only the fruit. That's only the fruit of the deeper issue, and that's the issues of the heart. So don't look to your external performance. Evaluate and look at the very intentions of your heart. Which leads me to my second point. Because sin is a matter of the heart, our affections and our desires must be holy. Our affections and our desires must be holy. Brothers and sisters, it's not good enough that we don't commit the overt sin of adultery, the overt sin of murder, the overt sin of fill-in-the-blank. That's not good enough. Our affections must be holy. If, excuse me. Our affections must be holy if we are to please our righteous king. You see, God has a standard not just for external performance, but God has a standard for internal performance as well. God has a standard for our internal affections and desires. So let's look back at our text. I want to draw out a key word uh, here in the text. He says in verse 28, But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So this word where he says, with lust for her, this word is epithemeo, it's a verb, and it means to set the heart upon. It means to long for, to to desire. It also means to covet. That's part of the definition. In the original language, this word epithemeo is used both as a negative desire, but also a positive desire. It's pretty much a neutral word, just depending upon the context on if it's going to be a negative or a positive. So the word in and of itself is not negative. Matter of fact, Jesus used this word when he said he desired to eat the Passover meal with his disciples in Luke twenty-two, fifteen. That same word, epithemeo, he longed for, he desired something good to eat the Passover meal with his disciple. Well, here in our text, this longing or this desiring is for a woman or a man who is not your husband or not your wife. Now, this is mirrored, this longing after, this desire for uh, a person who's not yours. It's mirrored in Proverbs chapter 6 and verse 25 says, do not desire her beauty in your heart, nor let her capture you with her eyelids. So Solomon in Proverbs 6 is instructing his son to observe his parents' teaching for the purpose, in verse 24, to keep him from the adulterous, evil woman. And he says, do not desire. That word in the the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, That word is the same word, epithemeo. Do not desire her beauty in your heart, nor let her capture you with her eyelids. And we all know that Solomon had firsthand experience with the dangers of unholy desires, did he not? So I want to make a distinction at this point 
Uh, For those that are not married, it's not wrong to desire to be married, to long to be married. It's not a sin to desire to be intimate with your future wife. God gave us marriage and intimacy, uh, and it is a good, it is a beautiful thing. Okay, so what we're talking about here is the danger of desiring another woman or another man who's not your wife, who's not your husband. And also the more broader scope of this is the danger of desiring anything that would distort what God has made holy. Our affections need to align with the Word of God. So when we long for things and desire for things that um, don't comport or don't align with the Word of God, then our desires and our affections are wrong, and we need to repent and get them right. So this would dismantle the idea that one can have what they call same-sex attraction and be right with God. For men to have the desire to be with other men in an intimate way or women desiring to be with a woman is unholy. That affection in and of itself is unrighteous. It's unholy. It's twisting the very nature and and beauty of marriage and it is not fit for anyone. And it doesn't have to be mental sexual lust after, but it can be a general desire for same-sex attraction and this conflicts with the word of God of God. Matter of fact, God in Romans 1 talks about men desiring to be with men and women desiring to be with women. And so what you have here in our society now, this this term they came up with a couple years ago called same-sex attraction or SSA is that Christians can be gay as long as they're not acting upon it. They can have same-sex attraction as long as they're not fulfilling those, uh, those desires and friends That is not biblical. It doesn't line up with the word of God. God cares very much about what our desires are, what our affections are. And I'm afraid that the culture, once again, the culture is bringing along the church in this area of sexual immorality and homosexuality. And we have to hold to the standard of the word of God. But I want to spend the rest of our time to talk about what your affections are, where are they, and what your desires are. Men, where is your heart? What are your affections set upon? Those of us that are married, are your affections for your wife? Or do you long after other women? It may not even be sexual in nature, but are you attracted and do you desire and long for a women who are not your wife? Your affections, men, husbands, your affections are to be for your wife and for your wife alone. And Solomon actually says this in Proverbs 5, verse 18 and 19. He says, let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your Youth, as a loving hind and a graceful doe, let her breast satisfy you at all times. Be exhilarated always with her love. I love that word, exhilarated. That word literally means to be consumed or intoxicated. Literally. Husbands, as the leader and protector and priest of your home, one of the main ways you can protect your marriage is to be consumed or intoxicated with your wife. 
to be consumed or intoxicated, be exhilarated always with her love. Rejoice in the wife of your youth. Does that describe you? If I were a fly on your wall, could I see that you are exhilarated with your wife? Could I see that you're rejoicing in the wife of your youth? Protect your marriage, husbands, and set your affections upon your wife alone. This means your physical affections, your emotional affections, your mental affections, and even your spiritual affections. Set them upon your wife. When you do, men, you set a safeguard for your own heart not to drift into sexual temptation with looking at things you ought not to be looking at. Now, wives, you're not off the hook either. Look at the same text in Proverbs. It says to the man to be exhilarated always with what? With her love. To be exhilarated with her love. So, wives, are you giving your husband something to be exhilarated with? Or is the only thing that's being received by your husbands is cold complaints. Proverbs 21:19 said it's better to live in a desert land than with a contentious and vexing woman. Now I understand just reading that passage the air gets a little thick, okay? But dear sister, I say this with all love that you're not commanded to change your husband with your complaints, or to manipulate him to get what you want, nor to be a constant source of contention. You are commanded by the word of God to love him to such a point that he is exhilarated with your love. Martin Luther once said, and I'm going to paraphrase, that men should love their wives in such a way that she is sad when he leaves for work and is most happy the moment he comes home. And vice versa. But I'm afraid in many homes it can be the opposite. Men, are you loving your wife in such a way that she's sad to see you go? Sad state if your wife is happy when you leave to go to work. Men, are your affections on something or someone else? Wives, are you loving your husbands in such a way that he longs to get home quickly to you or that he dreads to come home to a contentious wife? Brothers and sisters, this type of marriage does not honor Christ. Now, this ties very much to the text, in case you were wondering. How did we get there, Mark? This ties very much to the text because your affections and your desires when it comes to sex, must be holy. It must be righteous. Not just sex, but in general, your affections and desires must be holy. When they're not holy and righteous, your marriage will suffer. We're, we're coming up to the text on divorce. I know everybody has, has seen it. Uh, hopefully, you're looking at it. We're coming up to that text. And I, I, I'm sad to say that Most divorces, many divorces are in the Christian home and they start with the affections of the heart. 
So men, where are your affections? Are they for your wife? The looking at stuff you ought not to be looking at, the pornographic um, activity, it doesn't start with your phone. You can get all the fancy stuff, but if your heart has a will, you will have a way. You can get all the accountability you want, but it starts in the heart. If you're not guarding your heart and your affections, and your, your affections are for your wife and your wife alone, or if you're single, your affection should be Christ and Christ alone. That's where it starts. That's what leads into the looking at things you ought not to be looking at. The, porn, the pornography, the sexual lust, the desiring women who are not your wife, God is not pleased. I can tell you right now, God is not pleased with it. And brothers, I, I encourage you to repent. Re, repent a lot. And repent a lot. And cry out to the Lord if you're struggling with looking at things you ought not to be looking at. Maybe it's not even pornography on your phone. Maybe it's, uh, uh, maybe it's something with a woman who is not dressed that modest and, you, and you're having sexual thoughts in your mind and you're playing those out. Uh, brothers, you've got to repent of that. It's going to ruin you. It's going to ruin your marriage. Now, ladies, I understand that you don't struggle with this like men do. You know, the, the statistics was like 18% of Christian women uh, struggle with pornography. It's very low, and that may be you. And if it is, the same exhortation to you goes. But ladies, I want to ask you, where are your affections and desires? You may not struggle with sexual lust, but remember, this text is more than just sexual desires. There's this overarching, this broad principle of having our affections in the right place. And it says, whoever looks for or desire, whoever longs for. Okay, this word in the Greek is the same word for coveting. Okay, what are you coveting? What are you longing for that God has not given you? The 10th commandment is thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife nor his servant, nor anything that is thy neighbor's, right? The idea is that don't long for things that God hasn't given you. So ladies, where's your heart? Are you longing for things uh, that God has not given you? Are you longing for things that God has not given your husband, but you long for them? Are you longing for other men? Maybe not in a sexual way, but maybe in a way you think, I wish my husband was like that. We've got to be careful of that, ladies. You know, in this day and age, at our fingertips, we can get to know somebody very intimately through YouTube, through all the resources God gives you. You can get to know godly men very intimately through the use of technology. And I want to just caution you wise because your temptation is not normally sexual, but it's emotional. You see, you see a person that might be a very godly person, and you, you say, Oh, man, I wish my husband was like that. And then you begin to long to think what it's like to be married to a man like that whom God has not given you. And ladies, that's just as displeasing to God because you're emotionally taking away what God is, has told you is for your husband. And you're taking it away and giving it to another man. So I want to warn you, ladies, warn you what you're watching not necessarily something bad. But again, don't be drawn away to other men and wish that your husband was more like that other man. Rejoice 
Wives, rejoice in your husband. Set your heart and desire him. So lastly, I want to drive home this point on purity in the heart by looking at a few excerpts in Proverbs. So open your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 5. So we're going to look at a few excerpts in Proverbs 5, 6, and 7. Solomon is addressing adultery in all these chapters. And what's interesting, we're going to look at these excerpts in each chapter from 5 to 6 to 7. What's interesting about this, that each warning that Solomon is giving to his son, he intensifies the warning. It's like he's wanting to make the point to his son to not even go near it. As Paul said uh, to the church of Corinth, flee from sexual immorality. So we're going to start with chapter 5. And really the whole warning is in the first 14 verses. Okay, I'm just going to read some of it. He says, My son, give attention to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding, that you may observe discretion and your lips may reserve knowledge. For the lips of an adulteress drip honey and smoother than oil is her speech. Verse 4, But in the end she is bitter as a wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps take hold of Sheol. So he's giving this instruction. He's saying it sounds good, it looks good, but stay far from her. Verse 8 says, keep far away from her. Do not go near the door of her house. And then look at verse 12. If he gives in to him temptation, he says, you will say how I've hated instruction. And my heart spurned reproof. I've not listened to the voice of my teachers, nor inclined my ear to instructors. I was almost in utter ruin in the midst of the assembly and congregation because he did not listen to the wisdom of Solomon to stay far away from sexual immorality. It's not something you can play with, brothers and sisters. If it's on your heart, you know what that's like. You've got to get rid of it. You've got to flee from it. You've got to seek the Lord with all of your heart that he would get rid of it and that you would stay far from it. Now, chapter 6. Look at verse 24. After he encourages his son to keep the commandments of his father and mother, he says, To keep you from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress, Do not desire her beauty in your heart, nor let her capture you with her eyelids. For on account of a harlot, one is reduced to a loaf of bread, and an adulteress hunts for the precious life. Think of verse 27. Can a man take fire in his bosom and his clothes not be burnt? Friends, don't think you can just kind of have a little bit of lust. Oh, that's, that's okay. It's not hurting anybody. Nobody knows. Just a little bit of lust. Paul, you know, Solomon is saying, can you actually put fire in your lap and expect not to get burnt? It's the same thing with sexual immorality. Can you expect to play around with lust, whether it's looking at things you ought not to be looking at, whether it's seeing a picture of an attractive woman and then spending time and lusting in your heart for her or him. You can't expect that you're not going to get burnt. It's not going to end there. It's going to keep going and growing and growing. 
until it brings you to utter ruin. You cannot even play with it. Or can a man walk on hot coals and his feet not get scorched? So is the one who goes into his neighbor, neighbor's wife. Whoever touches her will not go unpunished. So then look at chapter 7. Now here's where it really intensifies. <clears throat> Proverbs chapter 7. In the first, verse, uh, first eight verses, Solomon gives this actual illustration of uh, so, uh, an adulteress actually trying to convince this man to come to his house to have uh, uh, intimacy with her. And look at starting in verse 21. It says, With her many persuasions, she entices him. With her flattering lips, she seduces him. You see, first of all, he shouldn't have been out there at night. He shouldn't have been where he ought not to have been. And Paul says this in Romans. I believe it's the last verse of chapter 12. He says, Therefore, put on the Lord Jesus and make no provision for the flesh. If you know there are certain situations, brothers and sisters, where it's going to tempt you to sin, stop putting yourself in that situation. You understand what I'm saying? It's like David with Bathsheba. It says that he, looked, he went upon the roof of his house. He should have been out there fighting with his men. He went upon the roof of his house. They took baths on the roofs of their house you really, in the middle of the day, right? And he saw the woman and saw her beauty. That was the first heart sin he had already planted in his heart and sent to call her. He made provision for the flesh. He shouldn't have been up there. If you know there's certain situations, again, that tempt you in the, in the, um, in the realm of sexual immorality, stay far away from it. Oh, I can handle it. Oh, I can do it. No, you can't. You can't. Just stay away. And so it says that she seduced him with her many persuasions. And verse 22, it says, Suddenly he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter. Solomon gives this picture of this man going to something that he wants, he desires. He's, he, he is willingly going, and Solomon gives this picture of this man going to commit sexual immorality. He gives this illustration as an ox goes to the slaughter, or as one of the fetters to the discipline of a fool, until an arrow pierces through his liver, as a bird hastens to the snare, so he does not know that it will cost him his life. Sexual immorality will cost you your life, you understand that. Maybe not physical life, but it will cost you your very family, relationships. It will cost you your life. Stay far from it. Look at verse 25. Do not let your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. For many are the victims she has cast down, and numerous are all her slain. Her house is the weight of Sheol, descending to the chambers of death. Brothers and sisters, I want to encourage and exhort you to watch over your heart with all diligence. For the Bible says, from your heart, flows the wellsprings of life. My final warning is this. <clears throat> Those who are steeped in habitual sexual immorality, unrepentant, the Bible says they're simply not saved. The Bible says 
that they are simply not saved. This is in Revelation 22, verse 14 and 15. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates of the city. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral persons. And that word in the Greek is specifically about sexual immorality. The immoral persons and the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices lying. I'm not talking about believers who fall into sexual sin because that happens. I'm talking about somebody who lives in unrepentant sexual immorality. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 9 and 11 says the same thing. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, uh, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. These are the ones who live in this unrepentant, habitual, sexual sin, idolatry, drunkenness, uh, thievery, uh, swindlers. They will not inherit the kingdom of God. But praise God for verse 11. He says, but such were some of you. Such were some of me. Can you say that about yourself? But you were washed, but you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. And that can be you too, brothers and sisters. Friends, if you're living in unrepented sin, you claim to know Christ because you gave him lip service when you were young or you got baptized and you, you came down the aisle, you signed the card that you gave your life to Christ when you were seven years old and you were baptized, that may be you. But friends, if you live in unrepented sexual immorality, lust of the flesh, you do these things and you honor God with your lips, but he says your heart is far from him. I need you to question where you are with God today. Because if you're putting your trust in the prayer that you said, if you're putting your trust in your baptism, oh, I'm saved because I got baptized. I'm saved because I said the sinner's prayer. You understand, if that's your belief, you're not putting your trust in Christ and therefore you are not saved. I don't care if you were baptized twice. I don't care if you said the sinner's prayer five times and the last time you thought you really meant it. If you're putting your trust in that prayer, you get what I'm saying? If you, I am saved, I know I'm saved because pastor so-and-so said it and I said the right words and I think I really meant it and that's why I'm saved. Friends, you're putting your trust in yourself. You're putting your trust in yourself and not Christ and Christ alone. See, repentance is prerequisite, it's a requirement to be saved. So if you're unrepentant about sexual immorality and you just think, oh, it's okay, Friends, I question whether or not you're even saved. Repentance involves sorrow for sin, hating it and forsaking it because it is displeasing to God. And putting your faith in Christ means knowing that your only hope of salvation is not in anything that you have done, can do, or will do, but putting all of your faith and trust in the person and work of Christ. Putting your faith in His righteousness putting your faith in his atoning work for your sins. 
So friends, if that's not you today, I encourage you from the youngest to the oldest, turn from your sin. Turn from your sexual immorality and come to Christ. It says here that he will wash you. He will sanctify you. He will justify you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Finally, if you're a born-again believer and you struggle with sexual sin, uh, first and foremost, know that you're not the only one. There are people around you that, unbeknownst to you, probably struggle with that same sexual sin. And I would encourage you to confess your sins to one another, as James says, so that you could pray for one another. But if you've struggled and are struggling with sexual immorality, friends, you cannot take that lightly. You can't hide it from your wife. You can't hide it from your friends. Uh, It will come out eventually. And you can't hide it from God, most importantly. So I would encourage you, brothers and sisters, if you're struggling in this area, take it to God Repent, seek the Lord while he may be found. He can wash you clean. And listen, every time, every time you mess up, if you struggle with sexual sin, you will mess up. And when you mess up, don't avoid God. That's the last thing you need to do. When you mess up, don't avoid God. You run to him. Oh, I I messed up again and I, I said I wouldn't do it but I did it anyways. I can't pray. I can't come to God. Yes, you can. You come with repentance. You come on your knees crying out to the Lord, begging him to wash you clean because once again, you've sinned in the sight of a holy God. And guess what? He says he will forgive you of your sins and wash you from all unrighteousness. Don't, Don't veer away. Go to God. Confess your sin. Find a sister. Find a brother uh, to confess your sins and hold each other accountable. Uh, And last thing I'll say is this. We do much harm to the gospel when we don't have a pure heart. We do much harm to our children and our marriages when we don't have a pure heart. So heed the words of Jesus today. Don't Measure your outward performance. Look at your heart. David said, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and a steadfast spirit within me. Try my heart, God. Test my heart that if there's any wicked way, that ought to be our prayer today. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so very much, Lord, that you are so merciful to us, God. Father, I know I can probably speak to many, Lord, who have failed in this area of sexual immorality. Uh, Father, I thank you that your word says you've washed us, you've cleansed us. So, Father, I pray for those who struggle, God, with longing after other people who are not their spouse, either emotionally, mentally, physically, sexually, whatever it might be, God. I pray right now that you would convict their hearts, if you haven't already. And God, bring them to repentance. Lord, and I pray that if there's anyone who's not in Christ, that you would use this word, God, to show them your holy standard, that they need a Savior, that they, that they cannot live up to your standard, and that they fall short of your glory, and that they need salvation through Christ. God, I pray that you would help, God, those who are steeped 
in sexual lust, those who are looking at things they ought not to be looking at, Lord, I pray that you would help them by the power of your Holy Spirit, by the word of God, bring them to repentance to such a point, God, that they can't even go near anything that would cause them to stumble in this area of sexual immorality. Raise our view of sexual purity. Raise our view, God, of marriage, uh, Lord, and, and purity so that we would be a good gospel witness, Lord, that our marriages would be Christ-centered marriages, Lord, that women would uh, be exhilarated with their husbands and husbands would be exhilarated and rejoice in the wife of their youth. So, Father, those affections would not be drawn away, Lord, I pray that, God, when people meet men and women from this church, God, they, they can see Christ in them, not in a um, prideful way or we're better than anybody at all, but they can see the purity and the humility and the gentleness uh, and the courage that you instill into us. We thank you, Father, and at the end of the day, God, we pray as you grow us in sanctification that we would give all the glory, all of the praise to you and you alone. In Jesus' name, amen.